0: good morning everybody welcome back to the uh dave and wes comedy hour we have uh uh, not yet had a major uh, gaffe this morning which has been great but i'm sure something will arise and you'll just swing with it when it happens we will too hey some of you are reading along in our uh study in job and uh Uh, This week, we have a pretty good chunk that we're looking at. Hope you had a chance to read it, Job 8 through 14. Next week, we're going to take even a larger section, chapters 15 through 31. So if you are uh, trying to read along, that's going to be a little bit better than two chapters a day, chapters 15 to 31. We're reading it together. We're looking for big ideas, not trying not to get lost in some of the complicated details and references that we don't quite understand. So for those of you who are doing that, uh, 15 to 31 for next time. I get some questions that come in, and uh, I like to try to answer some of them. Uh, Some of them I give a feedback directly through emails, uh, but others uh, we try to take here. So I had a question. I think this came from Janice Freytag uh, sometime back, but I wanted to mention it. She asked the question, how do we decide what is authoritative in the book of Job? Uh, obviously, uh, people are debating back and forth about this question of suffering. And uh, how do we know what, uh, what is true? What has authority? If you, if you want to memorize some verses out of Job, how do you, how do you know you're memorizing verses that are Really true, and not just somebody's uh, opinion like Bildad's opinion or or Zohar's opinion that really isn't uh, necessarily authoritative. So, that's a good question. Uh, I thought I'd make just a couple notes on that. And uh, the first is this I think that it's important as we try to understand Job that we understand it within the larger canon the larger collection of biblical books the larger story that can help us sometimes so uh so we ask the question what parts of job sync or connect effectively with the larger message of the bible for example all of the main characters in Job agree on certain things. Uh, they agree, as we've noticed, about the sovereignty of God. That even though there are uh, uh, there are secondary forces that act in the world, uh, there are the Sabean raiders who come in and steal some of. Job's flocks and kill the servants who are tending them, Uh, but behind that stands the sovereignty of God. Job and his friends all acknowledge that God is somehow ultimately involved in these actions, And, uh, and we say, well, is that, that seems so strong, such a We might say kind of a hard view of who God is. And yet, as we think about it, that outlook fits with the overall story of the Bible. There's some questions here and there, obviously. But as far as the overall story goes, their view is right in line with the rest of Scripture. So I would say we see some statements about God's power, his greatness, as we've called it. Uh, accept that for what it is. That is part of the overall story. Uh, Some other things are not going to fit as well, and uh, we ought to be more cautious about those things. I guess another question I'd ask is, how are the characters in Job portrayed by the story? That may help us to assess what they say. So at the end of Job, God appears and says, of the three friends of job they have not spoken truly about me now obviously in some aspects they did but in the fundamental point of the debate that takes place in the book of job the friends have not spoken truly and god says job has so those kinds of uh, helps are there in the story and i guess the third thing i'd ask is what is the purpose or the focus of the book? And we've been trying to develop that and seeing that the purpose is, how do you live wisely in the face of suffering, especially innocent suffering? Uh, There are other things that Job references or that different people say that uh, I don't think we have to endorse, all right? So some of the references to uh, the universe, what what the scholars call cosmology, the way the world is, or the way it's formed. Uh, we find, as we read Job, that there's mention of the pillars of the earth, uh, suggesting that somehow the earth is supported on pillars. Well, we know that this was uh, an ancient view of the structure of the universe, and it shows up in Job. I don't think that we are required by Job to somehow assume that that's the way the earth is. Right. Our scientific knowledge is different from their view of the world, but we say to ourselves, you know, that's not the purpose or the focus of Job. So those are a couple of questions that I asked myself in trying to answer uh, Janice's uh, significant question. You may have other thoughts about that as well. And uh, I'd be glad to see any suggestions you have if you want to send them to me. All right. So where have we been? Uh, We have joined an ancient discussion of the wise. We have uh, placed ourselves in this group of people that are reflected behind this story of Job who are concerned with knowing how to live God's way in God's world. And Job, you might say, is the, uh, the most difficult challenge to that question, how ought we to live? Because it takes up this question of suffering, particularly the question of innocent suffering. And we, because we've read those first two chapters, we know that Job is innocent in terms of what he experiences. On the other hand, Job's friends who come to comfort him actually do not believe that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. They believe in what we've called the retribution principle. The idea that you get what you deserve in life Uh, as as we saw paul's statement of that you reap what you sow now let's go to our uh, let's go to our screen here and take a look at this. Uh, this is a diagram that I wanted to show you last week, and because of our technical problems on the East Coast, we weren't able to show it, but uh, <clears throat> look at this with me. I got this uh, diagram out of a book by uh, Trumper Longman and John Walton called How to Read Job, and uh, they call this diagram the Triangle of Tensions. What's the tension? Well, the tension is a tension between God's justice and this retribution principle that you you get what you deserve in life and Job's righteousness. Now, when we start the book of Job, right out of the gates, there, in fact, is no tension in this. Uh, The retribution principle appears to be working in job who is the class a example of the retribution principle so uh god says at the beginning he says to the the satan have you thought about job do you know anything about him i'll tell you about job job is uh a blameless man he's the man who keeps my commandments he fears God, uh, so, so Job gets high marks right from the start from God, and, and Satan says, well, sure, uh, look at the way you blessed him. In other words, uh, God's justice plays out in the retribution principle that you get what you deserve and Job is a prime example of that. The righteous man, Job, is blessed in virtually everything he does. He has the perfect family. He's got wealth. He's got power, respect, influence, all that stuff. He's got good health. So initially in the triangle, there is no tension. But this book is about what happens when there is tension in the triangle, and uh, we see what happens. Job's situation changes drastically. And now his friends come, and they're trying to figure out, along with Job, what has happened here. The, The suffering of Job has created instability in the triangle. Something has to give, and so, His friends come and sit with him for a while, and then they start to talk about uh, what's happened here. And the tension in the triangle is tough for them. According to their principle, you get what you deserve. They look at Job, who they've always thought to be a righteous man, but they see Job suffering. And they say, wait a minute. The retribution principle, you get what you deserve, tells us that Job's suffering is not innocent. There must be something about Job that we haven't seen. He must actually be guilty of some sin against God. And the result of that is that Job is now suffering. That's the way the retribution principle works. So the friends are trying to figure out what's going on with Job. And on the basis of the retribution principle, they say, you know, Job must be what he doesn't appear to be. He must actually uh, be an unrighteous man. They don't know what the problem is, but they're sure it's there because they're building on that retribution principle. Now, uh, quick ahead, Kaylee. Job, of course is convinced that he is righteous. He's not aware of anything. His friends are trying to probe for it. They're kind of making him fess up. But he says, I haven't done anything to bring this upon myself. And of course, we as the readers, because we know what the, the players in the drama here don't know, we, we know those opening two chapters. We know that God has had a chat with Satan, and there's something else going on here that's outside of their understanding but job is convinced of his own righteousness so as he thinks about the triangle of tension he feels the same tension he feels it even more keenly than his friends do what's he going to do well since he's convinced of his own righteousness the move is going to start click us up now again Kaylee. job's attention is going to focus more on god the three friends don't even want to consider that. They're going to get really hot about the whole issue. But Job starts to turn his attention to God and say, maybe the problem isn't with me. Maybe it's with God. And last week in chapter 7, as he was talking to Eliphaz, we, we saw that, uh, that issue where he says, you know, God seems to be kind of picky about all this. As almost an allusion to Psalm 8 there, where, Lord, what is man you're mindful of? him. Job says, you're too mindful of me. You you must be picking out faults that aren't very significant, and I'm suffering in a way that doesn't seem appropriate. He's not really attacking the justice of God yet, but he is moving in that direction, which will actually develop uh, later in this book. All right, so. Let's uh, go on from there, and uh, let's look at the chapters 8 through 14, and I'm going to build it around a question that uh, uh, Bildad, the first of the speakers for today, actually asks. The question is, does God pervert justice? Because as we've just seen in that diagram, the friends are listening to Job and they are getting nervous because they are hearing Job begin to turn his attention toward God and how God runs the universe. All right. So follow as we read. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied. And, you know, it reminds me of an old uh, Sunday school, uh, joke that we used to circulate when I was a kid, uh, who's the shortest man in the Bible. And uh, it's not Zacchaeus. It is Bildad the shoe height. So sorry for that, but uh, I'm reverting to my childhood. Uh-oh. So Bill dad says, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, and even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state, your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. And for now, we're going to skip over uh, Job's reply. And we go to the next, the third of the friends, Zophar the Naathemite, who replies, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Because he's upset with Job too. Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? understanding there, mocking God. You say to God, my beliefs are flawless. I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Yet, if you devote your heart to him, and Stretch out your hands to him. If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear, and you will surely forget your trouble, recalling, recalling it only as waters go by. All right. Well, let's talk about these two fellows, Bildad and Zohar. I'm gonna call them fair weather friends. And uh, you've probably sensed that uh, already. Uh, Click it up there for us, Haley, Kaylee. Let's think about what we might wanna call the hard edge of truth. Uh, And notice I put truth in uh, quotation marks uh, with a small t, Uh, the two friends, or the three friends actually, because it goes back to Eliphaz as well, Uh, the three friends have a truth that they're holding on to. It is this truth of retribution, which we saw last week is woven all the way through scripture, that you reap what you sow. Uh, So good you reap good, so evil you reap evil and uh and they're they're holding on to that that's their truth and the result of it is that these guys have a hard edge right job they sit with him for a while but when they actually get going when they listen to what he's saying about his experience they get harder and harder with him And their advice becomes tougher and tougher and and sorry, Joe, no sympathy here. We we hear it more and more as uh, they go through their talks. The hard edge of truth. Uh, Click us again, please. Here's the thing about this kind of truth. Uh, it actually misrepresents the truth. That is truth with a capital T. Uh, their retribution principle gets a part of the truth about living God's way in God's world, But it doesn't get the whole truth. And very obviously here, part of the truth it doesn't get is it doesn't get Job's experience. They think they have a read on what's happening with Job. But the fact is, they have missed it. And in the end, because of their hard-edged, small-t truth, they do a disservice not only to their friend Job, but they do a disservice to God. Because God is going to appear at the end of Job and say concerning the three friends, they have not spoken correctly about me. Now, friends, I think we need to uh, reflect on this. Not a lot this morning. This, one, this one's worth taking away with you. Uh, an awareness, which I think Joe pushes us to, that our human perspective, even when we think we're wrestling with the truth and that we know the truth, our perspective remains a finite, limited, human understanding of the broader truth, which is the truth of God. There's always limitation there, because God is the infinite one and we are finite and limited and our brains just uh, are restricted. And so when we deal with the big questions, it's important for us to do so with a heavy, dose of humility that constantly comes back and checks ourselves to say, you know, is there more here than I might see or certainly more than I might understand? If we don't do that, we end up being hard-edged Christians. And unfortunately, one of the struggles we're having in Western culture today is that Christians are regarded as hard-edged people. And uh, we're seen as being, uh, what do we say, touchy. And the fact is, there's much truth, small t-truth, I guess, but there's a lot of truth in that. And I think part of it comes from Christians who take their limited understanding of the truth of God and assume that they have got capital T truth. And in doing so, they think that they necessarily speak for God on all kinds of circumstances that they really don't speak for God. And it hurts the ministry of the gospel, and it often hurts people within our own churches because we've got that hard edge and they, they can feel it quick as again. What happens is with this hard edge that uh, it results among other things in false charges and exaggerated charges against Job, his friends are supposed to be there to comfort him, but in the end they don't give any comfort at all. They make his, suffering worse because they're not able to really deal with what he says. And uh, you see these exaggerated charges. This is what tends to happen. They get over the top in uh, what they say about Job. And so Bildad, I mean, get this, you're supposed to comfort people? What does he say? In chapter 8, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Now, that's quite a move, isn't it? Not only is he going to be saying to Job, uh, Job, you know, you're suffering, so you obviously sinned. Even though we don't know what that sin is, now he's taking it a step further. He said, Job, you know, you lost 10 of your kids. And... The retribution principle here tells me that they must have sinned as well. And God has given them over to the penalty of their sin. This is extraordinary. And somebody that's trying to help someone else, exaggerated charges. And then we get, I I love this guy, Zohar, Uh, and the way he talks about it. uh, He says, chapter 11, Verse 6, know this, Job, God has even forgotten some of your sin. You are such a big sinner that God had to do all this to you, and, and in spite of that, he's forgotten some of your sin. So we got exaggerated charges. Now, what's, what's prompting these guys? Click us again, please. Well... I think at root is they are afraid. What are they afraid of? There's an interesting verse back in chapter 6 that we didn't have time to look at last week, but I've been reflecting on it for a while. Chapter 6, verse 21. Job says to to his friend Eliphaz, Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful, and you are afraid. What is it that they see that makes them afraid? Uh, probably most commentators would say that what they see is Job. They see his circumstances, and they're saying to themselves, oh, I sure hope this doesn't happen to me. Now, that that's a possibility, I suppose. What I suspect is that there's something more involved here. That when Job says, you see something and you are afraid, I think Job may be talking about that triangle of tension that we looked at. Uh, and, And the way this retribution principle stands for these three friends. I mean, that is their groundwork. That's their foundation. That's That's what gives them the hard edge of truth. That's how they evaluate the world, even this difficult question of suffering. And Job, by his protestations of innocence and his turning of the attention toward God is threatening their foundation. And they are afraid. They have to get angry at Job. They have to exaggerate the charges against him. They have to be very sure that they've got the right read on things because if not, it means they've got to go back to the groundwork and reevaluate an awful lot of what they thought about the world. They are afraid. And then finally, click us again. They have a simple solution. And this this runs through what the three friends advise from Eliphaz last week, right to uh, chapter 31 next week, uh, they've got one simple solution: God is angry with you; you've sinned, and therefore, what you need to do is to repent. Uh, quick, as again, please. As a, here's just one example uh, from a later chapter. And this is Eliphaz. He says, "If you return to the Almighty." you will be restored if you remove wickedness far from your tent. The assumption is you've done something wrong, Joe. And the solution is to repent that idea of turning back to God. That's the fundamental notion of repenting. Click us again, please. You remember a diagram we've used many times here. Uh, Repentance is about a U-turn. Repent. Now, uh, is repentance a good thing? Yes, absolutely, it's a good thing. Uh, do we virtually all need in one way or another at some place in our lives to repent? Absolutely. Is repentance then always the solution to the things we face? Answer, no. That's too simple an approach to life. That's exactly what these guys are doing. You're in trouble, Joe. It must be your fault. The solution to that is to repent, to turn back to God, and then God will make everything right again. Well, the problem with that message is it does not fit Job's situation. They don't know that. They're guessing, although they they don't think it's a guess. They think it's just plain, simple, on the face of life. But the reality is we as the readers who have overheard the discussion between the Satan and God himself, we know that that is not a true analysis. We know that is not Job's solution. That's the problem with fair-weather friends. That's the problem with the hard edge of truth. All right, let's go and look at a bit more then at what Job says in response to these fellows. Then Job replied, to build that. Indeed, I know that this is true. And I think he's referring to the basic principle that, that uh, God is just, that's what they're upset with. They hear him questioning that. So Job says, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? You see, he, he still wants to push that God side of the triangle. job says though they wish to dispute with him which is what he wants to do they could not answer him one time out of a thousand his wisdom is profound his power is vast who has resisted him and come out unscathed how then can i dispute with him how can i find words to argue with him though i were innocent i could not answer him i could only plead with my judge for mercy He's not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it is now, as it now stands with me, I cannot. And then he says to uh, Zohar, my eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. He senses that they've been talking down to him, which they have. I'm not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. If only you would hide me in the grave, And conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not to keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. So let's think about Job's reply to these uh, hard-edged guys. First, give us a click there, Kaylee. first part of Job's response is interesting here. He's he's focusing on this God side of the triangle. He's got questions about God. He's got questions for God. And what he proposes is this bold step. He wants a court date. God is the judge of all the earth. and, And Job says, in effect, okay, I'd like to come and talk with the judge. I'd like to put my case before him. And as we go through the rest of this book, we'll see that uh, right up until the end, when he actually, he actually gets what he asks for, he gets a day in court. But right up until that time, he with, with greater emphasis all the time, he wants to come and have a talk with God about what has happened to him. But uh, he also wants a mediator to do that, or at least he recognizes that a mediator would be helpful. This is a remarkable passage in Job. uh, His reflection on the character of God. Uh, for, For Job, we saw this back in the beginning of our study. For Job, God is great for all of his friends god is great he is majestic he's powerful he's sovereign and job is pretty honest with himself to say you know i'd like a court date i'd like to talk with god and know what he would tell me to explain all this i'd like to know why but if i just go directly into god's presence The infinite, powerful, sovereign, majestic God, and I come before him in my weakness and finiteness, I won't be able to speak. There's a uh, a striking passage uh, where Job even says, you know what, if I come into his presence directly like that, I'll end up condemning myself. So he's very aware of this divine human distinction and the great gap that's there. So he comes up with this idea of a mediator. He said, you know, if if I could just have someone to come into court with me who would bring us together, who would keep away God's fear from me so that I could think clearly and speak clearly, uh, someone to bring us together, is then I'd be able to talk, then I'd be able to have that conversation. Now, it, it's a, an obvious thing, I guess, that we go through the book of Job, and we come to the end, and Job gets his day in court, and things go exactly as Job feared they would, although it turns out to be good for him, but... It's exactly what he thinks is going to happen. He gets in the presence of God, and he doesn't know what to say. He says, I repent. There's no mediator for Job. There's no one who can get in there and bring about some kind of an equal conversation. But Job sees the need for it. Now, if, if you're a, a Christian, Listening to this, I'm sure you're thinking ahead in the biblical story, and you realize that further down in the biblical story, that that's exactly what God Himself provides—not just for Job, but for all of us who desire to seek God and come into His presence. Specifically, uh, the Apostle Paul has a statement about this. Kaylee, if you give us that next screen. First Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. This is the man Christ Jesus. This is the part of the story that Job uh, doesn't know anything about. He's too early on in the story. He's on, you might say, he's on the wrong side of the cross. But those of us who are on the other side of the cross, downstream, we have this understanding that what Job sensed the need for is exactly what God has provided in sending his son Jesus, who is the God-man, who is the one who can stand between Us in our weakness, our sinfulness, our finiteness, and the majestic, powerful, infinite God. Jesus comes in between, and particularly he comes in between us through his cross and his resurrection. He lays down his life. He deals completely, not just with Great sins, but small sins with all sins so that we can come with freedom, with lack of fear into the presence of God. So it's an extraordinary statement that Job makes there about the importance of a mediator, but he doesn't get one. Next screen. Then the other thing that stands out in this section and continues through the rest of the book is the concern that Job has to find God. This this story from Job's perspective is about pursuing God. God has disappeared on him. That's the way he feels. So his questions are, where is God? What is happening to me and why is this happening to me? Notice, his question is not, how can I get out from under this suffering? His question is not, how can I be restored to my previous good, prosperous life? That that is the question that the friends are trying to answer they're not asking the question of why or where is God? They think their retribution principle is playing out. Job is suffering because he's done something wrong, even though they don't know what it is. And so what they want to do is help him to get back to prosperity. Uh, yeah, if you, Job, if you just repent and turn back to God, then God will restore what you have lost. Your, your new prosperity will outshine your old prosperity. That's not Job's question. Job is pursuing the God of the whirlwind, the God who will appear in the storm. That's who who Job wants. Next slide, please. And so you get within Job's speeches, uh, this alternation between hope and despair. Um, I think about myself, if I were in a situation like that, would I have anything but despair? Would I just be totally hopeless? That would make a lot of sense to me. But, but see, with Job, you get this alternation. There's a lot of despair. He curses the day that he was born. He wishes that he would die. Even in the chapters for today, he he has some allusion to that, that God would just free me from all of this. Let take my life. But in the midst of that despair, there are statements of hope that are uh, quite remarkable. And uh, click us again, Kaylee, please. This this verse in verse four in chapter fourteen verse fifteen is uh, just strikes me very powerful. He says, "You will call, and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made." Think of the contrast with those verses we looked at last week in chapter seven, where uh, Job is complaining about God, and he says, "God." Uh, what are human beings that you pay so much attention to us? And, and he's talking negatively there. God, you, you seem to be picking on me. You're looking for every little last fault that you're like this overly severe parent who, who is perfectionistic and won't let your child be a child. But this is a very different statement now at the end of fourteen. You will call, I will answer you, you will long for the creature your hands have made. You, the creator, delight in what you have made. And I believe that one day, I will experience your delight once again. It's quite remarkable. And we're gonna see some other comments like that later on as we study Job. So let's summarize. First, Job still believes that God is great and God is good. That's where he started. As far as I can see, he still believes that. Certainly believes that God is great. He's got some questions about the goodness of God and why this all has happened to him, but he hasn't given it up. That last, uh, statement from chapter 14 that we just read is proof of that i think so he's got questions he's not sure what the goodness of god means in the midst of all of suffering but he believes god is good then next job wants to be right with god he wants vindication he wants to be declared righteous not just before god he wants it before his friends he says you guys have been lying about me you don't know what's really going on in my life you don't want to understand you're afraid of what you're seeing because it calls into question your view of what the truth is but he wants vindication and uh, in the end that is what he's going to get and then finally Job wants a vital, personal relationship with God. What strikes me as uh, so important about this this man is that he goes into and through this intense suffering, knowing that he's innocent, and, and through it all, He's seeking God. He wants to speak with God. He wants to know God more deeply. This is quite remarkable, especially because there are many people in the world who suffer. And some of them suffer uh, innocently. We know that. Job tells us that. But when they experience that suffering, they don't just have questions about what God is doing. They make the determination, God is not worthy of my worship, he's not worthy that I should seek him, that I should pursue a relationship with him, and they turn away. And uh, they may even come to the point of denying that God exists. Some some atheism is the outgrowth of that kind of an experience. So Job stands to us as this model of someone who says beyond my suffering beyond the losses I've experienced the thing that I do not want to lose is a relationship with God and I will pursue that at all costs even though I may not understand everything that is happening And we're going to see how Job continues to pursue God right to the end. So I hope you can join us next week. And uh, I'm sure we'll have at least one more uh, technological glitch that uh, we can entertain you with. Uh, For that, you'll have to just wait expectantly. Uh, Let me uh, pray a blessing from Numbers chapter 6 upon you for this week. And uh, then we'll say goodbye. So Aaron's blessing on the people of Israel, take it to your own heart. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.